Welcome to Backstory, the show that explores the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Nathan Connolly. Now, if you're new to the podcast, Brian, Nathan, and I are all historians, and every week we take a topic in the news and explore it across American history. So this week we have the second in our series on immigration. And basically we're going to pick up where we left off in the early 1900s. Now at that point, U.S. officials were at their wits' end. Illegal immigrants were sneaking into the United States from Mexico. As one government official complained, We couldn't stop them. If we had the Navy on the waterfront, we couldn't stop them. Not even a Chinese wall, 9,000 miles in length and built over rivers and deserts and mountains and along the seashores, would seem to permit a permanent solution. This is historian Erica Lee. Now, guys, this all sounds pretty familiar, right? Sadly, yeah. That sounds huge to me, Joanne. (laughs) Huge and familiar. Also, much like today, U.S. officials at this point were doing their best to try and catch these people at the border and detain them. But there is a twist. The immigrants are not actually Mexican, but are Chinese. I did not see that coming. (laughs) So wait, this is Chinese immigration from Mexico. Chinese immigration from Mexico. So there must have been a lot of border guards then, yeah? Well, not exactly. There's only a a few dozen of them in the early 1900s, but they're patrolling their line, and they call themselves Chinese catchers. Now, Erica Lee told me that the Chinese immigrants that were sneaking across the border were actually part of an international smuggling ring. These people were furnished with detailed maps, safe houses, and even fake ID papers. There's even a a case uh, in the National Archives where the U.S. immigration officials found a group of about 20 Chinese who were expertly disguised as Mexicans and were being housed in a hut a little south of the border and being taught a few words of Spanish so that if they were caught, they could claim to be (laughs) Mexican and not Chinese. So it was easy to cross the border if you were Mexican and not Chinese. Mm. And how many Chinese are we talking about, Joanne? A good question. Um, Erica Lee says the numbers are hard to pin down, but she said that the best estimates are about one or 2,000 a year. And why are they trying to get into the U.S. from Mexico? Another good question. Well, guys, the basic reason is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which Congress oh. passed in 1882. And this was the first time that the United States targeted immigrants based on race or on national origin. Asian immigrants are not only the first to be excluded or banned, they also become the first illegal or the first undocumented immigrants who try to come to the United States across the U.S.-Canadian and U.S.-Mexican borders. So hold on. You're saying that we didn't have any illegal immigrants until the 1880s? And not only that, that the first illegal immigrants, quote unquote, were actually Chinese and not from Latin America. Yeah, kind of a big double whammy there. Now, Lee says that the Chinese Exclusion Act is a watershed moment in American history. It's the, the first chapter in our long history of, of undocumented immigration and the ways in which immigration will find another way to come into the United States if there's the the means, the will, and jobs waiting for them on this side of the border. Today on Backstory, we're looking at how the United States tries to control who gets in and who's kicked out, because the president has big plans. 
Department of Homeland Security announced brand new priorities when it comes to their plan to deport illegal immigrants. The White House is rejecting the charge that President Trump is pursuing mass deportations. We will soon begin the construction of a great, great wall along our southern border. This is the second in our two-part series on immigration. Our earlier episode was about immigration bans, but today we're going to be focusing on how the United States polices its borders. We'll hear about a little-known deportation campaign in the 1930s that targeted Mexican immigrants and their American-born children, and we'll also hear how the U.S. immigration bureaucracy has grown dramatically over the 20th century. As we just heard, there weren't any federal restrictions on immigration before the 1880s. Businesses actively recruited immigrants, and they came from all over the world to work in factories, farms, and mines. And while many Americans were ambivalent or even hostile towards those newcomers, they kept coming as long as there were jobs. Which brings us back to my conversation with historian Erica Lee. She pointed out that in the late 19th century, the federal government had just started to police immigration, and the southern border of the United States was still pretty open. Mexico becomes the backdoor for Chinese immigration and later Asian and, and even European and Syrian immigration. Um, those immigrants who find themselves either locked out of the United States because of um, restrictive immigration laws or because they're concerned that, for example, they might not pass the inspections at Ellis Island or another port of entry. And so what's what's bringing these people, what's driving them to cross the desert to get into the United States from Mexico? This is the era of migration. Uh, we call it the century of migration from 1830 to 1930. 35 million immigrants came to the United States during this time period. Just over a million are from Asia. So they, just like all of the Ellis Island immigrants, are coming for the same reasons, for uh, labor, for economic opportunity. Some are fleeing persecution. But they're being focused on as a group that, that has been declared illegal immigrants. So what is the problem with Chinese and Japanese and Korean people who are trying to get into the United States? Asian immigration sparks, really, the first large-scale immigration debates in the United States. Uh, and the debate is should be very recognizable to those of us living today. The arguments about an immigrant group that was just so different than previous immigrants, incapable of assimilation, from a country and a civilization that was diametrically opposite uh, from mm. Americans and from America, but again, also because they were racially so different, uh, more like African Americans than like European immigrants. So it's so it's racial and it's cultural and it's ideological and it's the full spectrum of things to be <laughs> anxious about. Absolutely. Throw economics in there too. Yeah, it's pretty yes. much everything bundled into one. Right. Um, well, that, so let me ask you a question uh, that's more geographically based. We're focusing so far, we've been talking about the Mexican border. Does that border stay a, a leaky border? I mean, so the, does the back door kind of become a leaky front door? Absolutely. And over the course of the early 20th century, 
There are U.S. agents paying informants for any information about Chinese who are, are landing in Mexico and, and moving north. And there's also a system of patrolling the border. So we do see an increase in the border patrol from just three officers patrolling the Mexico-California border in 1891 to over 80 by the early 1900s. So it sounds like part of what we're talking about on the border between the United States and Mexico, we've been focusing, obviously, on the story of Asian immigrants trying to get across. But surely there were Mexican people trying to get across, too. How does that play out? So one of the ironies of the Chinese Exclusion Act is that it does ban one group at the same time that there is such immense labor needs in the Southwest. This is a time period when the railroads are continuing to be built. Lumber is continuing to be milled. Um, this is the birth of the great agricultural empires in California and, and many other states. Chinese had provided the labor in all of those industries when they become excluded and when other Asians become excluded, this is when we start relying on Mexican immigrants. And so this, there's a tacit hmm. and maybe also explicit understanding at the border that we need them as laborers. And because hmm. the U.S. Um, government is getting pressure from Southwestern employers to keep those gates open to Mexican laborers. Wow. So let me let me take us for a moment away from the border and take us mm -hmm. into the United States. Um, so let's say we're focusing on uh, some Asian immigrants who are illegally in the United States, but they're in the United States. Are they living in fear? Are they afraid that they're going to get caught and sent back across the border? Or do they assume that once they've crossed that border, that they can sort of incorporate themselves in and, and it's not they're not living in fear so much? It's absolutely a life under the shadows. And I'll never forget this this one immigration file of a young Chinese-American man in San Francisco. He's suspected of, of coming in under fraudulent pretenses. The immigration service has, has um, placed him under surveillance. They catch him unawares uh, coming to work at a Chinese restaurant. He's a low-level Chinese restaurant cook. And he runs for his life, uh, but he leaves his wallet behind. And I remember opening up an immigration file and his wallet falls out and there oh, was no gosh. money in it. And I'm just thinking, you know, what he must have had to live the rest of his life, you know, just fearful that anywhere that he was going to show up, it might be the last time that he went to work or went home. And what went through that guy's mind? What happened to yeah. him? Well, you know. Yeah. Um, but but let's take a little bit of a longer view. How does this story that we've been unfolding here about early border control, what does that do to shape immigration policy in the long run? So what's the what's the impact of this ongoing sort of struggle that we've been talking about largely taking place on the Mexican border. We have border patrols. And then when that doesn't work, we start instituting interior enforcement. 
meaning we go after those who we suspect are already in the United States uh, without documentation. We go into their businesses, their schools, we're watching them, we require registration. It completely changes our relationship to immigration from one of complete welcome to one of guarded and measured restriction to one of exclusion and punishment um, Mm. so that we have normalized uh, racial profiling uh, for certain immigrant groups. And once it becomes normalized, it becomes so much easier to expand that mentality and those policies to other groups. Right. So so there's models that are being set. But everything that we're describing here makes more friction and more tension rather than making things operate any more smoothly. Right. I mean, for the Chinese in America, not only are they singled out for exclusion, they also cannot become naturalized citizens by law. And so those two things um, combined, but also the constant threat of deportation uh, for the Chinese in America, it reinforces self-segregation. It's Mm. clear that we're not wanted here. You know, we can only do so much. We can work here, but we can't become citizens. So for many Chinese American families, mine included, many don't root themselves here um, Mm. until, you know, several generations have passed because you just never know when, when you might be kicked out. Erica Lee is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. She's the author of At America's Gates, Chinese Immigration During the Exclusion Era, 1882 to 1943. 